Kia ora everyone, and welcome to The Word, with me, your host, Christopher Von Roy. Thank you for joining us today on the 13th of October 2021, on episode number four, where we talk with the amazing Dr. Rebecca Kleinberger. This is a real treat, this podcast. Rebecca is a research fellow at MIT's Media Lab. She also works with several corporations and organizations in her unique capacity as an expert of the human voice. Her research and expertise has led her to study, analyze, and form an understanding of voices and the human voice in particular. We touch upon every topic imaginable, from psychology to artificial intelligence, to design, to ornithology, to all different facets of academia, which is fitting because Rebecca is probably one of the most educated people I've ever spoken to in my life, with three master's degrees, a bachelor's in math and physics, an engineering degree, and a PhD from one of the world's greatest technology universities. Rebecca's work has been featured on the cover of Financial Times. She was featured in the Hacking Consciousness exhibit at the Harvard Divinity School. She's worked with Google, with Microsoft, and her work has also been featured in 60 Minutes and Engadget. She also recently did a talk on TED that was viewed by over 1.4 million people. So this is a pretty stellar guest. And whilst the conversation might go on for two hours, I urge you guys to stick to the end because there are some real treats in there. Rebecca has been an amazing guest. And as you can imagine, an expert with an expertise on the human voice, it is also a treat just to listen to her. So without further ado, let's welcome Rebecca to the show. Enjoy. Rebecca, can you hear me? Hi, Christopher, can you hear Yeah, Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, excellent. I'm so happy that you could join us. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. It's the end of the day today, and it feels like a Friday, but it's not really ah, Friday. Amazing. It's the exact opposite <laughs> to me. It's the beginning of the day. <laughs> so you both have a tea. It's, it's, uh, at least we might have that in common. <laughs> a coffee or something. Exactly. I've got a licorice tea, so you probably have a herbal <laughs> Fantastic. tea. Fantastic. Um, I was going to say you are first trans equator guest ever on the show, so this is going to be interesting. Yay. Where are you at the moment? <laughs> You're in Boston, aren't you? I'm in the Boston area, yes, and it's Somerville, it's close to Cambridge, yeah. Somerville. So um, how is it? It's turning into autumn, isn't it, there? So it's getting probably a bit colder. Yeah, not yet completely. It's still warm in here. Yeah. What about you? How, how is the weather? Uh, well, we just had... A, so I'm in the South Island of New Zealand. So we uh-huh. are always dependent on the wind coming up from the Antarctic. So we had uh-huh. a, a nice start to summer about a week ago, really warm temperatures. And then just last night, it got to zero here. So it was frost. Yeah. So whenever a big wind comes from the Antarctic plains, we get, yeah, we just some, sometimes we get almost snow falling here where I am. So I'm quite remote. Wow. Yeah, it's the top of the South Island there. Um, speaking of where I am, where you're not originally from Boston, are you, Rebecca? I no, got, I'm not. I've a bit of an intro to you leading up to this, but I'm going to let you probably. I, I was going to say, I feel like I'm talking to someone from the future when I talk to you, which is <laughs> funny because I'm actually in the future 18 hours. You're in the future, yeah. 
you're doing is yeah it's a mind-boggling this last week studying you i just it gives me so much hope seeing the stuff you guys are doing <laughs> so i was gonna you. say you can give a little bit of an intro like where do you yeah what's your origin story rebecca where are you from wow my origin story is that's such a nice way to put it so i i come i'm from france um, yeah. i was born in paris and i grew up in the countryside pretty close to paris um in an old farm so both my parents are literature professor um, so yeah and then that 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 comes back a bit in my work the way i right away decided to work on the voice but not on the yeah. words <laughs> and yeah. really trying to show the potential of voice beyond beyond words and yeah um, yeah so i grew up surrounded by animals that's also that that also came back a lot in, in my work so yeah we had, uh, i often say I, I feel very connected to new zealand because i grew up uh, with sheep so oh, amazing really, that's one of the skills i'm the most proud of i'm pretty oh, good at sharing sheep Wow. And I used to play rugby. I used to be no. really good at rugby. Rebecca, it's like you should almost be here. You're a New Zealander <laughs> by proxy. Um, <laughs> a shortage of sheep shears in the area I'm living, actually. So you'd be employed in no time. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dwindling profession. Plus, we also have a women's rugby club here. So if you ever feel Yay. like MIT is not <laughs> bringing up, you can come to Golden Bay. I'll send you the link of where I live. It's an amazing <laughs> place. And obviously, it's not so much. We've actually got an MIT in New Zealand as well. It's called the Manukau Institute of Technology. Slightly less funding than your <laughs> MIT, I'd say. But shout out to Manukau Institute of Technology. Um, amazing. So both of your parents were, what, professors of what literature? French Don't literature. You? Yeah. Yeah. At the Sorbonne or where was it? Sorry, can you repeat? At the Sorbonne or in Paris at the university? Or? No. So um, my dad was a professor at um, Nanterre University, which is yeah. called Paris 10 or Paris X. Um, yeah. And my mom ended up um, were working a lot with, with either special classes, children with disabilities, yeah. or very young uh, children. So she ended yeah. up. So that comes through in your work as well. People with differently. I know, you're right. Mm -hmm. And so, and then they met and bought a farm or what? Where you grew up. Is that how that uh, works? They met and I think they didn't want to raise their kids in, in Paris in, in the yeah. city. So, so they moved to the countryside and that was, um, yeah, so it was very important for me to really grow up, uh, you know, in the forest and with animals. Yeah. So where did you get your first experience of like building things and engine? Because you've got an engineering background, don't you? Yeah. Um, I guess I was. I, I ended up becoming the ugly duckling of the family. Was going into science. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, I I did enjoy building things pretty early on. I would um, you know build um, little houses for the dogs and the cat and and for the rabbits and. Always building stuff, and my my dad was always ready to to drive me to the to the hardware store, and I, <laughs> I still have amazing. now a love for hardware store. Where I, when I'm depressed or when I'm anxious, I go and look at screws. Oh. And, you know. <laughs> amazing. So, did you then? So, I guess you did engineering in France. Then your first degree so, is that right? Yes. The French system is a is a bit unique in that when you're um, 
when when you're pretty good in, in science in high school, you don't go to university, but you go to, I mean, you can, but it's a classic um, path to um, go to preparatory classes yeah. and then take national-wide competitive exam to enter what we call a grande école or engineering yeah. school. Yeah. Um, and so I, I have the equivalent of a ma um, bachelor in math and physics. Yeah. Um, and when it came time to, to go to a school, I ended up doing a, a, a shift and saying, okay, I've been around like deep theory for, yeah. for many years and now I want to, to touch the material, to touch the matter. So I, I went Apply. to yeah. mechanical engineering school uh, where I learned a lot of great skills in, in foundry and, and molding and casting. And uh, it's a very old school um, that was built in, in the 1700s. Yes. So there's a lot of um, traditions that come with that school. Where was so, that? It's called Arts des Métiers, ENSAM, Ecole Nationale Supérieure des Arts et Métiers. And there, is, uh, there are different centers. So yeah. I studied in the center in Lille, north of France, and in Oh, in wow. Paris. Oh, so it's all over France. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Exactly. Amazing. What was it called again? The Ecole? Say that word again. It's called so arts and craft or arts and ah and, and then you said Ecole Supérieure or something yeah it has this technical name of ENSAM E-N-S-A-M uh, Ecole Nationale like Supérieure des Arts et Métiers yeah ah right amazing so how long did you do that for that would have been three four so years I spent two years there and the last year I did um, an exchange program where I went to London for a second diploma there where I studied. Oh, wow. So that was just a year where um, the Pixar movie WALL-E came out. Oh, yeah. You know, the little robot. That. Yeah. And I got really amazed by, by the graphics and by the ability to tell stories um, yeah. through, you know, so, so it's great um, progress in technology. And I decided yeah. I want to work for Pixar. Oh, and wow. And I realized that I didn't know how to code. <laughs> And I needed to learn computer graphics. So I, I did a computer graphics master. Um, wow. Everyone else had a, had a bachelor in, in computer science. And yeah, of course. I didn't. But I was like, oh, I kind of know math. So I, I hope it's going to work out. Oh, and my God, Rebecca. Well. Yeah, that was, Where was that, that was then? Where in London? What university? UCL, University College London. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah, I went to Imperial. So we were at the same nice. university. Oh, then. yes. Yeah, what kind of time was that? <laughs> yeah. That was what time 2011? Yeah, 2011. So you had a bachelor's in physics and math, an engineering degree, and then you did this degree in coding. Yeah, that was another shift. I was like, great. Which was a, which was what, a master's? I to go the again. Yeah, that was a master's research. Oh, my Lord. And that was a year then, or, or lo a bit longer? That was, yeah, it lasted one year. One year, and you were already less qualified than everyone else to do that because you hadn't <laughs> studied coding. Wow, yeah, that's so, incredible. Yeah. And so, getting out of the comfort zone. and, and Yeah, but, I was going to say that. Amazing. So um, the Pixar dream, is that, that never eventuated? Well, I'd be up to collaborating with folks from Pixar. I, yeah. Um, you know, right, so these days I, I've been working with a lot of different companies um, yeah. and always kind of in this external way. 
and, yeah. and thinking about innovation quite deeply. So, yeah. Um, so you work yeah, as a so consultant on projects. Um, I, I used to work as a consultant uh, doing research. Now I actually um, I'm an on-site liaison for one of the member companies of the MIT Media Lab. So I'm, uh, I'm a research affiliate at the Media Lab, but I'm also um, an innovation manager uh, for Harman International. Ah, and that's uh, like an incubator company from MIT? That's a, no, that's an audio company. So it's, ah. uh, it, uh, Harman owns uh, JBL, Harman Kardon. So yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, incredible sound systems. Um, and also, but is also interested in innovation in, in a lot of different ways. Wow. So they work, what, with the music industry and the movie industry? Something like that must be. Um, so my role is to create connections between the company and, and innovators in academia uh, and to create oh, okay. um, those sparks and, and, and research projects. Um, so you're like a liaison almost yeah. between. Yeah. Amazing. That's, that sounds like an incredible job. So are you, um, so the MIT website says that you're a PhD candidate, which I think you've already gotten your PhD, haven't you? Oh, yeah, I need to update that. That's a good point. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Yeah, nice so, so after London, I um, arrived at MIT, and that was in 2012. And yeah, so why did you choose lab. MIT, I was going to ask. What made you want to, oh, was the Pixar so connection? Um, so when I was in, um, in the French school at uh, Arts et Métiers, yeah. As a METI has a very strong network of yeah. um, alums, one of the strongest in Europe, actually. Um, and I happened to meet an alum at one of the events that ended up yeah. being, becoming a great friend and a mentor. Um, his name was Jacques Picard. Oh, amazing name he, as well. Yeah, no, not the Jacques Picard that most no, people know for say, the hot hair balloon, but... But Star he also Trek, had, yeah. a, had a pretty crazy adventure uh, where yeah. he he was an engineer of Jacques Cousteau. You might know Cousteau. No he way. was a filmmaker. Yeah. So well, Jacques... Can I tell you something quickly, Rebecca? Just quickly. Yeah. So Jacques Cousteau's son um, sailed a boat to where I live. So the port on the ocean, there's the boat of Jacques Cousteau's son is still there. Like he used to come. That's fantastic. I know, yeah. to Takaka, this tiny little port side town in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. There's only like 4,000 mm -hmm. people live here. So there's another connection between us. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah. And Jacques so my, Picard. my Jacques, Jacques Picard. Um, um, so we, we became really close and he... He was telling me his stories that he started working for Cousteau. And at some point, Cousteau sent him to MIT wow. to study engineering them. And uh, since that time, he's been, you know, really thinking about the deep connection between MIT and our French school. And, and the more we talked, the more he said, hey, you should apply to MIT. And I'm like, am I what? I've never heard about that. Oh. <laughs> um, and so I started digging a bit and learning about it and thinking, yeah, that, that, could be a, that looks like a great place to be. So uh, I came for a summer internship in 2010, and then I, yeah. I applied after, after my master in London and, and got in, got in the master's program. Oh, yeah. wow. So you got to have a look at it for how long was the summer internship? Just a few months, yeah. But uh, yeah. it was enough to, to get hooked. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, Boston is a beautiful city as well, so it would have been a nice little, it's not a big transition from yeah. Paris, well, the outskirts of Paris. Yeah, 
there, there was some cultural <laughs> shock. Yeah, of so course, it's America no, still. No, no, really in terms of architecture. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, and so I, at the Media Lab, everyone has to start with a master's. So I did two years of master's and then uh, got into PhD program. Normally, the PhD is, an, is another four years after the master, but yeah. I ended up being one of those um, infinite PhD of just <laughs> staying extra years because I, I love the people, I had great resources, and um, yeah. I got to do a lot of collaboration already with, um, with other institutes and other places while, while doing my PhD. Yeah, so you, I mean, you already had a master's from the UCL. A master from no? France and a master yeah. from UCL. So I got a third one. <laughs> <laughs> so they make you do an MIT master's before when you join Media Lab. Is that right? So you yeah, can't just yeah. come in with a master's from. So you've got three masters, Rebecca. <laughs> so master, yeah. master, master. Wow. It's too much you know, two for one human academia, being. Yeah, it's just, it's just maybe this fear of being in the real world and being out of academia was. Um, I was going to ask. New learning. Yeah, exactly. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have two sisters. I'm the middle one. Are they all the same in terms of academic prolificness? They, they've done some great things too. Yeah, my, my older sister is actually, um, she's a, a um, I would say in English, a, a career mentor. She works with young people to help them yeah. find their, their own path and, and think oh, about yeah. all the options that are open to them. So yeah. she, she lives in France, yeah. Like and a guidance counselor. Sister, yeah, yeah, she does that. Um, my younger sister, um, she did also a lot of different things. So she's pretty eclectic like, like me. Um, she, but she, she studied business. Um, she came to the US, she lived in Chicago. She studied at Tulane University. And, oh, wow. Now she actually work at uh, Epic, Epic Game. So, oh, it's is a computer game company. Yeah, they do computer games and a lot of different stuff. And I think oh, she's amazing. still navigating within the company. And she's also in America with you, so you've got family to visit there. She's currently in France, but she should be oh. back in America in a few months. You know, immigration oh, right. and visa questions. Yeah. Of course. Okay, so we've got, you're doing your master's. And then what did you do your PhD on? What was the... Yeah, so, so both, uh, when I arrived at the Media Lab, I, I got pretty quickly hooked on, on the, the voice very yeah. early on. Um, so the Media Lab has a lot of different research groups that yeah. um, are directed by PI professors, um, yeah. and there are themes in the group. And my research group is called Opera of the Future. Yeah. And it's directed by Professor Todd McOver, who is a, a composer, a very famous um, composer. I have heard of him. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of a lot of the work and everyone in the group um, has a very unique um, expertise, generally mixed expertise. Uh, some people work on plugins, some people work on building new kind of musical instrument, some people yeah. work on um, health and music. Um, and I got very interested in in the in the voice, both in terms of musical aspects, but also, um, you know, a lot of other aspects. This, this notion of looking at the object voice holistically was really kind of yep. uh, what attracted me to that. Yeah. Amazing. So one of so, the first. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you tell me. You, you redirect me <laughs> anytime. Yeah, but I want to hear more. Please yeah. keep going. One of my first on project on The Voice um, was uh, part of um, a class on physics of information. And yeah. everyone was thinking about, you know, amount of information in, in different content, in different elements. How do you transmit information um, and quite a lot of the class was uh, on um, all the work from Claude Shannon and Entropy and Bell Labs um, and I I guess I got um, I got touched by the passion of of Bell and Shannon on on the voice and transmitting the vocal content and then I started playing around with that thinking well you know, some of the key element behind the telephone system is that we take the voice that contains so much information in this audio um, channel, the single audio channel, and, and they put it in buckets and they think about compression. Um, but yeah. what if instead of, of sending this very fast moving audio signal, we could um, deconstruct the voice in terms of muscle action. So, so the voice is really this fast moving L signal that's created from, from muscle uh, action from, from yeah. a voice box. And, and those are much slower because what actually moves fast are our vocal folds and it's a self-sustained um, action of vibration. But we could actually model yeah. it from um, just those, those fast moving those slow-moving uh, motor action that just shape the, the voice box in a certain way. So I said, okay, what if we pick maybe the 10 most important muscle, find ways to take the voice signal and, uh, and inverse engineer to go back to the muscle action, then send those nine slowly moving wow. signals and on the other end to kind of reconstruct the voice. And I did a very, very basic model of that, just you know, a few spring mass um in my model and and kind of what what i also liked with this project that i got to use some of the you know scattering equation that i used to use for like turbine modeling but for this tiny element that is the voice and and through this project i mainly learned that i before that i had no idea how the voice worked and that's also kind of a theme that that remained in my work is how is it we know so little about the voice and about our own voice um, and what is there to gain from a, from a deeper understanding of it? So, yes, that was one of my first projects on the voice. Uh, but then it took another year to realize that, you know, naturally I was gravitating around the voice and to really make that my main um, object of research. Yeah. You when you say you reverse engineered it, so you took someone's voice and then as if instrument, you worked out parts of making what sounds is that yeah but yeah and, and starting with a with a forward model of just okay what kind of shape is a voice box what are the main muscle that changes the sound um and 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 working up that mapping between the sound that comes out and those various muscles um which in a way it's kind of what babies do when they learn to speak Right, completely subconsciously, we we work. We hear our parents make sound, yeah, and then little by little, we find ways to imitate those sounds. Um, 
and and that's kind of how we learn how to speak and that's how now a lot of um, uh, people who do research on neurocomputational models um, of the voice also teach computer how to speak so you know the the reverse engineering is kind of a yeah. common element of the voice we hear something with our ear and without being aware of what we're doing our brain we 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 reconstruct the motor motor command of the voice box to to create those sounds And I think you said something as well about how biology, if we hadn't developed the ability to walk bipedally, we wouldn't have had the space to develop as long a voice box. So we wouldn't have been able to generate as complex sounds as we require for, let's say, English or, you know, one of our languages. Yeah, is that right? So, so what is it? one of the elements that I start the, the TEDx talk with is this, um, those three elements that somehow coincides. And, and this is, you know, an oversimplification, of course, of the science, but, but there are yeah. those, those three, the, uh, people have different opinion and it's still a very controversial field of, you know, at which point in, in evolution did, did um, species of yeah. homo sapiens um, appear and what make us what we are. Um, and, and there is also this yeah. tendency of people saying, oh, why are we unique among species? Or why are we so, you know, what makes humans and other animals different? And I tend to try to take distance from that because I don't think we're that different. Oh. Uh, but this notion of- There's of, so of much humanity, discussion and debate, yeah. So, yeah, so much debate here. So, but but just kind of mechanically, what's what's happening to to our, our human, uh, to, to just, getting to that threshold of what we call human or not. Um, and there is that coincide and, and we're not exactly sure which one came first or not. This notion of having a big brain and working on two feet and starting to, to, to speak, starting to communicate more um, thoroughly through sounds. Um, and, and those three elements can be somehow mapped to to almost a mechanical change in in the in our anatomies that have to do with with a little bone um, around our neck area of where yeah. uh, in, in the throat and neck that that controls this this angle um, in a way between between kind of the head and the body so maybe somehow we could we could englobe together the fact of having a you know working on two Basically, once you change the angle between head and body, that can drive working on, on two feet or, you know, working on two yeah. feet can drive this change of angle. And then that also is linked with the way our brain has been developing in the back uh, more than other animals. Yeah. When you look at the skull of a dog, you can see that the, the brain is more forward and doesn't have this big part in the back. Um, that's also a question of angle. Where can the brain <laughs> grow? Um, yeah. And somehow this, this, this voice box um, also reorganizes from this new angle, whether it comes before or after. <laughs> yeah, sure. okay. so just uh, any uh, evolutionary biologist listening, Rebecca's not yeah, making any statements here. <laughs> yeah. um, I remember when I was... Yeah, go on. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was studying evolutionary biology, we didn't even know what a species was. There were 
pages and pages of debates <laughs> in the literature about wet, what a species even means. And so, yeah, we're not even going to go into that hornet's nest of evolutionary <laughs> biology. But um, I was going to say, did you do any dissection of most voice boxes? Did you do any of that work in order to, or was um, that all, that research was all stuff that you could already access? And most in of terms, this was work. In terms of this reverse yeah. engineering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I've studied the history of dissection of voice box, if you want to go in okay. that direction. Okay. No, nice. but my work is a lot about creating those connections and, and yeah. reading through literature from different fields and thinking, hmm, maybe there's something that can connect and we can deep deeper in that field. And then I do my own experimentation and studies yeah. and, and experiment. Yeah. And project around that but but a lot of it is is reading and and connecting yeah. and talking with experts in different fields that, that maybe are not completely aware of what's going on in, in other domains because you did say it is an area that is still being explored you said i think the voice box like that's not you're there's it's a small field of people who would let's say call themselves voice experts right or well voice, voice expert can mean so many different things also that's tricky you know we In always come terms. back to like oh, yeah, as soon exactly. as we put words on thing it's complicated it's <laughs> just words isn't thing. it it's just um, words, but you know, voice experts are in um, in in the clinical domain, in people yeah, doing true. surgery on voice box, but on, on yeah. voice. But a lot of people doing DSP, digital signal processing, also can be voice experts, or in psychology, yeah. in neurology. Uh, each of those fields has their voice expert, and I guess I'm I'm trying to be a little bridge between a lot of those. Yeah, true, true. I didn't want to simplify it <laughs> right there. <laughs> um, so. And this is all happening at Opera. Who came up with the term Opera of the Future? What, what, when has that been around? Yeah, for the group has been around for 35 years now. Wow, okay. And, yeah, and it used to be called Hyper Instruments, and the group was focusing a lot on building new kind of meta instruments and new ways of, of helping either virtuoso or, or beginners and children to, to go into music. Um, and nowadays, a group does a lot of production work, um, and a lot of, you know, new ways of, of looking at, at music and sound and, and our experience of, of sound um, to create new type of experiences. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to take it back to when we learn, you said when we're basically little babies and we're in the womb and we're hearing our mother talk with people. We're, I would say more we're feeling our mother talk. So that's feeling, another yeah. tricky, tricky domain where, you know, to what extent, so I, and I can start saying, you know, I, I like to say that the voice is one of the first of all experiences. Um, yeah. And that when we are trying to understand the perception of uh, fetus and, and even to what, it, to some extent to the embryo, which is some of the, the some of the first stages of yeah. the fetus. Um, what does that mean to perceive? the world and and there's high chances you know that that there is already ex experiences inner experiences that that the embryo um experience uh, but at yeah. what moment does they start perceiving something about the outside world um and that's tricky because wow. to get a good answer to that you need to Talk not to only in you need to well well yeah you need <laughs> to get a sense of when they're sensory perception appear which is yeah. a connection between when the actual senses 
you know, the the nerves appear at different parts, but also yeah. at what moment the brain is capable of processing those information. Yeah, exactly. And it seemed that, that the combination of both um, and the, the, the that is perceived is through touch. So the, the okay. skin is the biggest organ in the body. Uh, yeah. And it's also one of the first organs that start developing um, in the embryo. And that the brain is capable of, of get, making some sense of, of a signal coming from the skin um, before being able to make sense of sound, to make sense of taste, um, etc. So, so that the first sense is sense of touch. And what of can touch. the baby actually touch when in water, the room? Water, isn't um, it? Just liquid. Water. So... Yeah, and you know, we can also go in the direction of what is a sense and how many senses do you have through your touch? There's a uh, lot of it, uh, but one of them is also vibration. Yeah, and, and what vibration do reach the baby? Well, vibration from heart rate of heartbeat yeah. of the mother and, and voice of the mother, it seems, um, are are reaching the baby, and the baby might be able to perceive them quite early. So. Maybe in a way, this yeah. connection to the mother, some of those tactile vibration can be seen as one of the first of all experiences. Amazing. And so, I mean, audio vibrations travel differently through water as well. So we, we actually hear with our skin, basically. If, yeah. If but, because what is hearing? Yeah, it's just vibration, absolutely. isn't it? Yeah. We can hear with our skin. We can, we can hear. So it must be so strange when we're born, we, we leave that environment. So we're actually, if you think about it, at our most comfortable, we'd be most in water, wouldn't we? Yeah, like, and, and in a way, once I... we're born, the one thing that that really indicates that there is life is the baby's first screen. Yeah. You know, this going. This, why the hell am I not in the water cry. anymore? Yeah. Yeah, it's this cry of of having for the first time our lung expanded. Um, yeah. Is is maybe. The, the, the first expression, the first projection of who we are yeah. in, in the world. Um, and in terms of when does the, do we know like when the whole cochlear and the ear, when that happens, the development of the ear? There is some of, good research on that, both in terms of that and also in terms of, so the part that interests me a lot also is, is the development of the inner voice experience. We can talk more yeah. about inner voice later, but yeah. but there is actually interesting literature to get a sense of, of course, when do we start acquiring voice? When do we start being able to, be, to, to control our voice? So, you know, the, the voice, to control our voice, we have to control up to 100 muscles in, in perfect synchrony. And we do that so virtuosically all the time. This is like yeah. a lot like of breathing. Muscles. I know, yeah. when, I, when I first heard that, when you said that it made me so conscious of talking. I could hardly mm -hmm. talk for the next the whole day after I figured that out. I was like, I'm moving a hundred different muscles in my, and you're doing it subconsciously. It's an, an amazing. Started, so, when I started studying the voice, I I got really stuck in this um, self consciousness of yeah. my voice or other people's voice. So I did have a phase of maybe six months a year where it was totally affecting my everyday life and my interaction with Talk. people. And then yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, from listening you talking about it, it affected me. <laughs> if I'd be studying it, I wouldn't even. Um, 
I was going to say one thing I'd heard is that the in terms of language and how that affects us psychologically, like the 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 term for mother is nearly every language on earth has an M in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of relates, you know, the whole, the Hindi, when you say Om, and that yes. just hearing the M sound has some type of pacifying effect on our, is that, can you elaborate on that? Is that true? That oh, the there, M- there is great research around that. And also a lot of, you know, so, some snake oil, but, but I am very interested in all of the traditions of, um, generally, you know, around mantra, chanting, around, um, I think this kind of deeper uh, awareness of one's voice, of what's actually going on. Um, and I think some, some cultures um, have some very ancient knowledge around that, that, that that's very interesting to, to understand. Um, and, and those are, you know, whether there is some soothing element from M sound, um, there's a lot of of different knowledge that can be either scientific or anecdotal around that. Yeah, like you said, snake oil, people esoteric yeah. stuff that doesn't esoteric, really hold. Yeah, yeah, and, and some of them is still extremely interesting. Uh, you know, the relationship to P sound versus M sound, um, and that statistically, children uh, says a P sound before, so Papa might actually be interested oh, wow. in Mama. Because um, it's easier could, to say. It's easier to say it comes earlier uh, and it's more recognizable. Um, yeah. And that's that also entering all of the extremely interesting field of, of you know, the social constructs and all of the social um, biases around the voice. You yeah. Know, maybe I Papa rec- comes first. So suddenly we decide that it's the name of the father. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Amazing. Um, well, Papa and Dada as well, I guess is a similar, Dada. your projection, mm-hmm. projecting. Um, recently when I was researching you and all this, I saw, um, which also really kind of messed me up an MRI scan of a man beatboxing. Have you ever seen this? Yes. Those are really fun to see. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like the amount of work going on in our voice box, Mm -hmm. our tongue, our mouth. Um, yeah. So I guess that's something where. Yeah, I mean, we can manipulate. I mean, someone who's beatboxing is probably using more than a hundred muscles in their, you know. To... Yeah, or I, another domain I'm really interested in, and I think is fascinating, is to think about the connection between a voice, a control of a voice, and the control of our hands. It's a concept okay. of dexterity. You know, dexterous come from the word hands. The yeah. way we can control our hand, uh, find dexterity, you know, the way people are so good at painting, drawing, uh, sculpture. Um, yeah. The way our, our, our species have evolved to, to use our hands so well, um, there is some kind of parallel in the way we control our voice box. And I think this video that you're mentioning of beatboxing is kind of, you know, has this element it, it's invisible but it is there it's like extremely complex so many yeah. muscles involved so much and it's it's extremely fast also we control yeah. our voice in a much faster way than than we control our hands even but when you look at in the brain in terms of the um, the space that it takes uh, uh, 
when you see the, the map of, of, of muscle command in the brain and, and how it relates to, um, you know, you might have heard the term homunculus, the, the homunculus, yeah. Uh, yeah. which means li little man. You can make an homunculus of, of sensory perception and an homunculus of, of, um, of motor command, which is what um, proportion of, um, of your body is actually used to control to control or to sense from different part of your body. And you see those yeah. representation with very big head, very big hands, huge tongue, because for example, you get a lot of sense from your tongue. Um, but you can also look at them mapped on the area of the brain that control it. Um, and when you do oh, that, wow. you see that most part is used by hands and, um, and basically face and tongue and throat muscle. Um, and those are actually located next to each other. It doesn't follow a, yes, it doesn't follow okay. a linear mapping of, of your body from top to bottom, but it, it follows a different mapping in which your your voice muscles and your hand muscles are, are very close to each other. So so it's also Wow, kind of so that would explain Italian people. <laughs> well, speaking with your hand is, is is absolutely a part of speaking. And I I, I, I in my definition of voice that fits in the definition of voice, the, the, the voice of your hand. And another way, another place where you see that is that when you, um, you know, deaf people, the deaf community uh, who yeah. use sign language um, have this, have true. A, a, a true culture, a true language uh, that, that, that uses the hand to, to, um, to do basically the same thing or more than what we do with our voice. Um, and when you ask a deaf person um, what does their inner voice feel like or how do they yeah. experience inner voice, um, a lot of them will answer that it, they see it, they, they, they perceive it as hands moving in, in a vacuum. Wow, amazing. That's how they visualize it. That's, um, that's how some people uh, say that they experience inner voice. So, are these, so yeah, would so these the be deaf people thing. who would, were deaf from birth or people who would become deaf? That's a good question. Um, I think there's a, there, there hasn't been a, a very formal study. Those are also anecdotal um, knowledge about, about this. But that would be very interesting to, to ask um, more people and to get this understanding. Right when you said that, it made me think... Like I'm fascinated with dreams, like most people are. So yeah. I was wondering if I ever hear in a dream, you know, that's a sensation that I've never really thought about whether or not if, if you're in a, in a room, if you're actually perceiving sound in your dream, because that would be kind of similar to the way deaf people would perceive sound, wouldn't it be? Because there are, is no sound, but in your mind... Um, or does that not make any sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and for me, dream, voices in dream is just one of the examples of inner voice experiences yeah. um, that, that cover a broad range of type of experience. And it goes from um, auditory hallucination for people who have schizophrenia, but it yeah. also covers the, the very common experience of silent reading. When you read yeah. silently, most people report actually hearing a voice. And when you put people in an MRI machine, you do see um, a voice selective area of the brain that are activated in the auditory cortex. Wow, really? So literally, so your, your brain, brain is hears, mimicking. Yeah. Not oh, mimicking. Man. Your brain does hear a voice. 
know? Yeah, so, so I mean, so, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. In terms of schizophrenia, I was talking to a friend of mine who's also works in the mental health area, and she was saying when it comes to schizophrenia and them saying that they're hearing voices, she's quite rational, but she suddenly just said, who are we to say that those voices don't exist? And we're just not tuned into it. So, I mean, I was, I was just before I was going to ask you what, if you're going to talk about the definition of the voice, maybe we should try to define it because if, if the hands and people who are deaf and sign language you know, and we also say to people, use your voice. And we don't actually mean talk. We mean use the clout, you know, use your influence on people. So voice is actually, the definition of a voice is, goes far beyond mere sound. It's actually like you just said, how our brain interprets what we think is sound, maybe. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I did it, I pinpoint the definition of the voice. No, I, I had to come up with my own definition. Yeah, so um, I'd love to hear it, that. It, it, is, it is a process in itself. It's a journey of, yeah. of coming up with what I decide for myself to call voice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course we can talk about the voice as like, okay, well, it's a airflow from the lungs that build up the pressure in the larynx and activate the self-sustained vibration, etc., And that creates a sound. But when I say that, I say how the voice works, but not really what it is. Um, and to, to define the, the voice, um, we need to decide on an angle to look at it because there are different facets of the voice, like we already talked about, that have intrigued scientists, researchers, and artists um, from millennia, from clinical medicine, neurology, evolutionary biology, computer science, information um, theory, um, natural language processing, digital signal processing. I mean, I can go on, but from, you know, linguistics, psychology, music, etc. Um, but my, I, at least I decide to have an approach that's holistic, that accepts all of them. <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I, I want to hear from all of them and I want to connect. Um, in my own research, because it's already such a huge field, I make the choice to work on voice aside from verbal content. Um, but that's also yeah. a great problem. What is verbal contact? <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. hard to define. Um, and then the voice, we can say it's a, it's a phenomenon that arises from an entire ecosystem of cascading factors. You know, it's, yeah. it's a hundred muscles in activation, millions of neurons in control, hundred millions of years in evolution, spread over more than 6,000 languages. Um, and it's, it, some people would say, well, the voice is a uh, sound or it's a sound wave, or it's a perceived sound, or it's a vibration. And all of those are slightly different. Some people say it's the organ or the mechanism, the phenomenon, the, the conversation, the object. At least in my work, I decide to say the voice is an experience. It's so an experience. I work specifically yeah. on the experiential aspect of the voice. Yeah. So how it relates to who we are, to, to how we perceive, to how we feel, to, how we, to what we do. So it's not, I decide to not take it in a, in a vacuum. <laughs> in a, no, yeah, not blinkered. Yes, but I, I decide to, to always take it. And I think that also relates to, to other points. You know, I've been talking with different um, voice tech companies in what is the future of voice technology. And, and I think one important point is to remember that the voice is always somehow embodied. 
even if you use a recording, even if you have a, an AI, even if you talk to Alexa, any of those elements come from initially a, a body, uh, a creature, yeah. uh, a living yeah. something. And then you can do stuff and then you can create step from it. But, but the embodied element is always somehow present. And, and the way yeah. we perceive it and we communicate in between human um, is deeply anchored from the fact that those voice come from a body. Um, okay, so Alexa, that's not a voice, that's a sound that comes from her. Well, but how was his voice it... created? How was his voice created? Where did this original sample came from? Oh, you know, right. Who are the creature? Who are the creatures who created the model? And then so the, who hear yeah. Alexa? You know, when we hear Alexa, even if we know it's completely a machine, our brain perceive it as an entity. And and one element that I really like to talk about in this field is hormones. Yeah. A voice really much reflects hormone levels. Um, yeah, that blows me away when you and, In many that. different ways. And in a way, each time we hear a voice totally subconsciously, extremely fast, our brain analyze that. Um, our brain is able to say, you know, the the at least the hormonal identity as a, as a people. Identity and gender is much more complicated than that. What? So any brain can do this calculation inside yeah, of... Yeah, pretty much. To get a, and so to what get a information study. is it gaining? The testosterone levels very, there? If we knew, we would already have done all of the models. Yeah, <laughs> you know? okay. So yeah. I've, I've done quite a bit of research on the way, you know, biologically and, and physiologically the... Um, the hormones affect the voice, um, and and there are some some great um, clinician and, and doctors and, and medical doctors who've, who've done research on on this. So so this is a, a very fascinating field um, that to get a sense of the way in which, and it's not just like the biology. So of course there is ways in which those hormone changes um, the lining uh, and the, the mucus and and the um, hydration of our voice box so that's kind of a big one yeah. timber is affected and that's also why um older voices you know all, um yeah. one that i like to say is when babies are born kids are very young it's very hard to distinguish a boy's voice from a girl's voice a baby yeah. in babies' voices it is not possible to distinguish there are a lot of biases though if you play a recording of a baby crying um, and you tell the person that it's a baby boy or a baby girl, they will think, and you ask them, oh, is the baby in pain? Does the baby need attention? They will, they will tend to think that the baby needs attention more if it's a boy than if it's a girl, even if you use the same audio recording. So there is voice biases oh, wow. already toward babies. But the voices are very identical. And then when you hit puberty and, and as adults, there is pretty different... Um, pretty big differences in terms of hormonal identity um, between individuals. But then when we become older, it's also very hard to distinguish an older man's voice from an older wow, woman's voice. Wow, amazing. So we come full circle almost. So we do come full circle there. Yeah. So, I you know, I can talk about that for a long time. Yes, please. I mean, this is actually super fascinating because in terms of hormones, I was straight away thought about um, the way corticosteroids and, you know, they're associated with stress and how mm -hmm. that's probably one of the most more conscious things that you can pick up when you're talking to someone. 
whether or not yeah. they're stressed. And I guess, mm -hmm. is that some, is that an angle? Because the other ones would be more masked, like estrogen or testosterone or yeah. even what, so, melatonin so when you wake up in the morning, like. Yeah, so, that and that's why I said it's, you know, there is a biology part of it, which is kind of fascinating. You're like, oh, those cells are doing more of this kind of thing yeah. because there is more estrogen. Um, but there's also a big part of the brain, right? The brain get those hormone changes a, a way to yeah. see that it's and it's really thanks to this complex mapping it's not one to one it's it's a many to many elements um or many to one you know if you think about one voice but but there's a lot of elements that change and and a big one is always the brain so i like to take the example of a, a drunk voice we're also pretty good at recognizing when someone is drunk when they yeah. speak right and when you try to like unravel that like why what is it that you can recognize the slur well there is a slur yes there's actually different type of slur uh combined in 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 the oh, world, wow. uh, when people are drunk there is a slur of muscle control okay and there is other slurs that that have to do with the fact that um you know the, the your time perception is different when you drink alcohol so so your brain who does the control not only have a hard time synchronizing but also is slower in general and wow. there's also changes in timbre because um alcohol dries uh, your voice box yeah you know, that's kind of a so so it's like the brain but different mechanism in the brain plus the biology plus the physiology plus plus people are going to say different things <laughs> right and people yeah. are also going to overcompensate by volume yeah. or by um, uh, how, how breathe um, um, how breath yeah, how many breaths they is. take so, so gonna, there's many mechanisms yeah when in terms what do you mean when so for people that aren't as musically trained timbre what is that what can you say what that actually is no. That, that's another one that's very polemic here. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, timbre. so you can't pinpoint. That would make um, Well, you could think of timber as... in it's a, a French word, By elimination, almost. Right? Yeah. So it, it's a tricky one. Um, and, and that's another thing. When you think about perception, even just describing voice quality is difficult. We don't have the right word to describe voice quality. People talk about, oh, there's prosody and there's timbre. Right, but it's it's an oversimplification. What is even prosody? I like to I like to use the word musicality of the voice because it's a little bit more yeah. um, open uh, to say that. Well, it's not just how the pitch changes in time, and it's not just how it kind of attack and decay do you have for each sound, um, but it's kind of a, a combination in in different timescales of, of how the voice sounds. So, you know, there is prosody, which is complex to define. And people say, oh, everything else is timbre. Well, if you take just a tiny, tiny snippet of voice and you just repeat it, it's going to be like, uh... So the quality of the sound that is not modulated in time, what is it? Um, ah. it's, it's a mix, again, between upbringing, between accent, between physiology, between vocal posture. So it's... Um, it's complex to define them. Yeah, so I was going to say. Words are missing for it, yeah. Even in yeah. music, people are like sometimes reticent to define timbre. Um, the polemical nature of all of this, it reminds me a little bit of, 
um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Like yes. we all know what's going on, but the minute we try and say what it is, exactly. it goes away and we're like, oh shit, we can't. So it must be so difficult to publish research in this area where everyone is on the same page. I because think what's it, yeah, do, no, absolutely. Do you have to define everything before you write something? Like this is my definition of when I mention timbre or when I'm talking about the voice, this is the area, this is what I mean. Do you know what I mean? Because there's oh, well, no universally I, I, accepted yeah. language or definition. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I just yeah. try my best to avoid those words <laughs> altogether. Oh, my God. Um, or coin your um, own ones, like musicality. Yeah. yeah, vocal posture is one that I like because it's also, you also kind of define it by, you know, you can say the voice is a mix between your physiology, like what your body is like, and 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 what you picked up from other voices and your accent and um but yeah but we often forget that our voice really changes with time you have a different voice in the morning and in the evening and you have a different voice for every person you talk to and you have a different voice when you're 10 year old and a 50 year old and you have a different voice when you're uh you know you're on your period or when you're not <laughs> yeah so, i mean so that was what was amazing as well rebecca when you said you have a different voice when you talk to your mother than when you talk to your friend or your grandmother or let's say a policeman yeah, your voice yeah, noticeably of, changes yeah it, so noticeably is a tricky one also uh is well it, for the brain for, yeah yeah um so um and a lot of it has to do with also social dynamics between yeah. people so yeah. uh, there are some some basic things like even uh, fundamental frequencies, uh, the, the general pitch of your voice um, that that is going to change. And we know, for example, that women's voice, um, women lowers their voice a lot when they're in work context. Wow! Um, to sound more assertive. That's the pa patriarchy. They, yeah, they go a, a lot, very much away from their natural vocal posture, which is some kind of. You know, well, your physiology says that roughly your fundamental frequency should be this, um, and so your your F zero should be around here. But and, and this is also something that has changed a lot with time. If you just see thirty years ago, forty years ago, women's voices were higher. What? So just in, in work or in general on the planet? In general, in general. Well, when you listen to older recording, generally even just in movies. Although performative yeah. voices are another topic that we can talk about. But, well, you know, yeah, I was going to say the recording equipment's gotten better, but. Yeah, but still, still. It's actual, measurable. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that is, and that, the, that phenomenon relates to the increasing amount of women entering the workforce. Oh, it's a bit more complex than that. Um, it's, that's a, a part of it, but also just we, voice mimicry and i use mimicry in a, in a tricky way here but we um voice is um oh what's the word i'm looking for here um multifaceted yes thank you that's very <laughs> true um but also voices um uh, say it in french when you, when you when you catch it like a disease when you catch a disease oh it's contagious Voice is contagious. Accents are contagious. So if everyone wow. around you okay. speak with a certain voice, if your mom speaks with a certain voice, you're going to speak with that voice too. And then subconsciously, if you realize that speaking with some voice or like authoritative woman or, or women that are in, more in power of certain voice, maybe you're going to subconsciously um, adopt that kind of voice too. 
So Amazing. So I was just going to say that to you, Rebecca. When I'm talking yeah. to someone from when America, I speak with a more of an American accent. When I speak to someone mm -hmm. in New Zealand, I have more of a Kiwi accent. I have noticed that in myself. And people say that to me as well. You sound, I sound, I used to do radio and they would say, I sound completely different doing radio than when I, they talk to me. And I, I've been working for a few years with people who stutter. So people yeah. who stutter, stuttering is is still very mysterious. Um, yeah. I can talk about stuttering for eight, for hours, but stuttering is contagious. So wow. in, in a very small way, in a very small way, you're not going <clears> to <throat> make someone stutter in the long term just by making them talk to a person stutter. But when I would well, have... When you're afraid, you stutter. Don't we all? Don't we all have a... So, so we are disfluent, uh, but what we generally what call stutters, disfluent mean? means that yeah. you're, um, you have disfluencies. When you speak uh, multiple fluently fluences. versus okay. disfluent, um, and what we generally call people who stutter or stuttering is a very specific uh, collection of what we call stuttering like disfluencies, which are repetition of sound, um, yeah. continuation of sound, or blockages. Um, and and they when you hear a person who stutter, um, it's generally recognizable. Uh, but you know, even the definition of stutter is complicated. But yeah. I brought that up to say that when I have is a friend or a study participant that come to the lab, and I chat with them, I start stuttering. Wow! It's, it's not to joke or to mock no. people. It's 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 actually something that you that you catch. Yeah. Is that empathy so, as well? That's got to do with levels of empathy i reckon that's a good question empathy is another word that's very hard to define <laughs> <laughs> like psychopaths wouldn't necessarily mimic you know that would be an interesting study yes. and then again psychopath is what is a psychopath yeah um yeah no those are good uh those are all good points of empathy is that you feel you know the whole walking in someone's footsteps like i would say like you feel another person's emotions and that's why you mimic them and some people are more sensitive than others to that. That's what I would define well, I, empathy as. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a whole piece for my general exam, <laughs> for my qualifying on exam empathy. On, on empathy. <laughs> Just okay, because well, I was so struck by the word. And, oh, do you want me to? Okay, we'll look at it on the website. A, a, design language, a design language around empathy, because it's very common nowadays to have designer and, and inventors who say, oh, my technology increase empathy but but if you don't have a design language and a phenomenal uh, yeah. of, of empathy in, that in measures technology it. then it's hard so so that was more the, the framing of of the work um when you um, yeah, so when this person comes over who stutters mm -hmm. that you're studying what so what are you mimicking the exact same stuttering or you just start stuttering a little bit yourself no i just start stuttering a little bit Oh, I so would you're not doing exactly the same stutters, no. No, no. no. Um, and then when they leave, do you, does it still continue for a little bit? And then wears an off? Hour or two and then wears off. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And have you been able it's to... Not every time, but it's, it, it's been common. I've definitely noticed it. So basically, if people want to stop stuttering, they shouldn't hang out with other people who stutter. <laughs> yes or no, actually. So the, or... the inverse is also true. There is... Um, in the US, we are quite fortunate, I'm sure it exists in other countries, to have a, a pretty strong association called the NSA, the National Stuttering Association. 
Yeah. Um, that's all about showing people who stutter that they are not alone um, and yeah. creating a community. So that's also very powerful to help people who stutter um, in, you know, improving their communication. Improving communication doesn't have to mean stopping stuttering. No. Right. There are a lot of people nowadays for which being fully fluent is not the goal. The goal is to to have good communication. Well, the uh, current which, which occupant of the White House is a stutterer, yeah, so that would have absolutely. been an empowering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he would. So that's the. I've never heard that. So disfluence is the opposite of fluence. Is that right? And, well, no one is ever fully fluent. So so we are all have moment of disfluencies. Um, and I just said um and eh. So those are examples. Um, feel yeah, the word. I do that a lot. Um, stuttering like disfluencies are, are pretty specific and and we notice differences in in white matter in the brain of adults who stutter so it definitely has uh, oh, for what okay. we understand today it's a mix between neurological genetic and environmental factors um, yeah so it's not just a traumatic like that's how it often gets portrayed in hollywood movies that there's something traumatic that happens and then that you almost drown and that's when you you know, that, that's the way all that disease used to be pictured or all, um, uh, I, I shouldn't say disease, but all, um, you know, other abilities, Abil- disabilities yeah. are, are pictured. It's, yeah. always a, it's always a trauma and it's always because of the mother. You know, that was the answer from <laughs> right. the doctor back in the day. The mothers at <laughs> fault for everything, yeah, poor yeah. mothers. So I, I think we're doing a good job nowadays to, to be... Uh, um, making a distinction between them. Yep. Yeah, that there's always more factors involved to do with everything, <laughs> right? I think the only disease that would be like a broken bone or multiple sclerosis and emphysema and rheumatoid arthritis are all, you know, made chronic through stress or it simplifies things a little bit too much doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we should always, I mean, this is what, so one takeaway that I will take, and I'm sure the listeners will take away from listening to you is your, for, I mean, you've got an incredible understanding, a deep understanding of so many things, but at the same time, you're also very aware of being certain. And I think that's what comes with knowledge and wisdom is your ability to realize that you don't actually understand everything the way and that everyone has different interpretations, right? And that's, I guess, a form of intellectual empathy. You know, so you speak to experts so often and they are so mostly male, very sure of what they're saying. And like, especially in the field of evolutionary biology where they're dealing with so many competitors. um, Like, it's such a good thing to teach people that someone like you who's at the upper echelon of their field are still, you know, doubting and you never, ever lay claim. I think in our our world now with this increasing polarity between in politics, this is something that everyone needs to take a page of, you know, this opinionated people. And, you know, we don't have to talk about vaccines or not vaccine, but like just being open to new interpretations and always it's um, what Einstein called it something. It's this sort of dancing, you're, you're a beginner's mind. 
that's what you remind yeah. me of Rebecca <laughs> like you've got this so you're always learning and you're never you're never static and how do you teach that to people Rebecca yeah. that's not everyone can grow up on a farm with two parents <laughs> to have so I think I guess that's what you're doing which is what we can go into now a little bit is how you've applied all this theory that you've learned over the years all these master's degrees and all of this how you've actually started to translate that into applications because I mean that's a whole other facet to you that you've actually yeah. started creating some amazing so maybe we'll start with what your PhD was on because that's how you would have transitioned sure I, I mean I kind of want to react to a, a couple of things you said first okay. I want Go to say it. that I'm I think I've been just mainly extremely lucky <laughs> you know yeah that's really how I see my trajectory and sure I've made some choices but but I do believe that life in passes path in life are, are really so much about luck about meeting great people and yeah. Um, yeah. So, so for first things, um, and then I want to come back to answer your question. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier when you said, um, "Oh, it must be so hard to to publish in this field. People are very strong yeah. uh, learning about some things." And the way I phrase it is that there's a lot of questions around voice that I would call are holy grail, holy grail questions. Yeah. You know, of like, well, detecting. Um, you know, I mean, hormone level is one a little bit, but just uh, detecting everything from the voice or or creating the perfect voice or, um, I mean, I don't have a really good example right now, but but very often I, I hit one of those um, holy grail questions that I, I feel like a, a few labs around the world are, are working on kind of head on, you know. And, and yeah. when I hit one of those questions, what I try to do is find find a detour, or find a tiny window, <laughs> you know, on the top floor. We're like, yeah. how can I look at this huge question in a different way and make a contribution that in itself might be, oh, I made this little project prototype study, but what I'm actually doing is carving a new entrance to, to a big question. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think a lot of my projects reflect that and reflect also the fact that I'm, I've been lucky to have such a great network of friends and, and, and yeah. experts and collaborators, and I'm never shy to send an email being like, hey, I just saw your work on that. That's so cool. Can we chat? <laughs> you know, I still do that once a week. Um, so, so kind of continuing this kind of... Um, it's your curiosity people. as well. Yeah, and, and, and being open to, to any, any field. We just recently... Um, yeah, did some great work on um, on sound and sound we make when we eat and how oh, wow. changing that in real time may affect your perception of food. Um, so, you oh, know, man. that's just... Can I say from... something about this? Yeah, <laughs> please. So I had, when I was studying biology, I had a really good friend, Omar Syed, and whenever he would drink orange juice, he would breathe through his nose and I would always be like, why on earth are you doing that? It's so annoying. Like in the morning, like we'd lift that, we'd <laughs> sitting there reading the newspaper and he's just like oh, doing this weird thing with his nose. And then he's like, you should try it, Chris. So I tried it and he's like, he's almost doing what the sommeliers do with wine, uh -huh. like letting it go over his, and he's breathing through his nose and out through his nose. 
and it makes the orange juice taste better. I mean, I get now I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> thinking about that because every time I drink orange juice now, which isn't very often, I do that. And it's like, it really enhances the taste. So incredible that you're yeah, actually doing empirical studies on that. Yeah, and that goes back to like the voice. It's the sight of the voice is the same as the sight of breathing, which is pretty fundamental. Wow, and really? The of, In the brain? The of, no, no, the voice box. The hypothalamus. You know, oh, the, the voice. Same, oh, yeah, okay. The voice box, the sight of the voice is, is the same with breathing, the same tube, yeah. and yeah. the same with eating. And yeah. I, I'm like, I'm going to include that in my definition of voice, you know? <laughs> Amazing. Chewing sound, that's a voice, you know? Uh, wow. So, and so, but there is a distinction between the uh, esophagus and you don't want to get food down the, what's the other bit called? The Oh, that's trachea. also pretty, pretty great. Because that's the worst feeling thing. ever. Yeah. Well, and we're one of the only species that uh, for whom that can happen. What? Really? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's because we have such a, it, it, it's, it's related to the fact that we have such a huge range of sound we can make. It's because our voice box is much longer because it uses part of the trachea. And, and because then that's why we can make those, I don't know, you're saying, like we can swallow in the wrong, in the wrong way. Yeah. And when babies are born, and that's, that's also linked to having a descended larynx. Our larynx is low in yeah. our voice box. And it create and this, this this division of tube is um, uh, happened way lower. Um, but when babies are born, their larynx is up, which also means that they can't make this this uh, this this wrong wrong swallowing, wrong breathing. And, and, oh wow! So that's almost like a safety feature. Exactly, it's a safety feature. Uh, I mean, yeah. So it's like and, and, and larynx also only start descending after a few months. Of age for, ba for baby after they've humans. learned how to swallow food i wonder if yeah, that's when, at the when, same time when they them, start yeah. eating solid food yeah that's so, that a... so it, it, it's a process and it seemed that it's it happened also with all the primates that uh, some baby i think it's chimpanzee even though their larynx is much higher than ours there's all there's still a process of uh, a laryngeal descent in baby chimpanzee but so, it happens at a different time. It happens when they're very young, in infant chimpanzees. Yeah. yeah. So, so just saying that, that the fact that, that swallowing and the breathing are different tubes, uh, we also have kind of this, this, this weirdness as humans that, that it's a process. And, um, yeah, it's a process in our evolution as a species. It's a process of our, as, as when we grow from, from babies. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's like I put all that in the same bucket. It's all the hormones. <laughs> and I was going to say as well, in terms of hormones and stuff, like they talk about in boys, the voice dropping. So, like, when they go through puberty, and there's that direct, speaking of a biological connection, has that got I... to do with testosterone, that the voice box goes, does it go actually literally physically go further down in males than females? So it is linked with sorry, it is linked with testosterone, um, and it is there is a bunch of physical changing, changes happening. Um, yeah. For example, the the lowering is yes, indeed, due to a mechanical lowering, um, but also the the timbre, timbre, timbre. <laughs> yeah, timbre. Um, 
the timbre um, changes timbre, from because there is a, a different type of layer of cell that come and, and cover the, the vocal fold when in men because and of the women yeah in women too but in different ways so it's it's different okay. type of, of layering of cells so it's it's again a mix between mechanical and uh, and and biology and um, how our brain sends signals and controls of voice it's, it's a mix of yeah stuff. amazing and so this happens would there be a reason why from an evolutionary perspective um, our voice or vocal cord is so much so different to let's say other other apes like why so what's the reasoning that's a good for it? question yeah. there, there are different thoughts and, and theories about that but generally when you look at the animal kingdom <clears throat> uh or when, I, don't, I don't like this term animal kingdom no i don't know either <laughs> when you look at the, in, in a lot of species lower voice i mean physically lower voice should come with bigger body bigger bodies yeah. you know if you were to scale everything the same way the bigger you are the bigger your voice so in a way if you have a lower voice and the voice is also one sign that that you transmit that you express of who you are what you are at a distance compared to visual cues in animals right yeah so very often you scream or you make a sound, and even without seeing you, other creatures have a sense of, of your presence, what you look like, if they want to fight you or not. Yeah. Right. So having a low voice is generally an indication for other animals that they might not want to mess with you. Yeah. So way of looking at it, um, and and you know, if you if you extend that, you're like, oh well, it's not to be messed with, so maybe it's a good possible mate, so you're going to attract more females. So that's kind of one one possible explanation um and a yeah. few species and and some animals have gotten pretty good at at um at at creating tricks around that they would lower their voice on purpose to pretend like they're a bigger, toad like, or a frog know, like a, exactly or like a you know when the cat makes their body look big when they're actually yeah, very small true. um and um and if, and having a descended larynx like, like we have as humans, seem that maybe it's been an evolutionary advantage also for that because it, it seemed to come with bigger bodies, so we pretend we're bigger than what we are. Um, yeah. but, but there are also other elements uh, that come in the equation. One is that it seemed that we can create more diverse sound. And it's still a theory, and I don't really know how I feel about that because a lot of animals do very subtle um, this distinctive sound just yeah. you know if you have pet at home you you know that right um, yeah but, so this notion of of projecting the image of a bigger body than you actually have so so that's uh, an example of, of uh, converging evolution where converging. Um, where you have different species from completely different branch of of uh, the evolutionary tree who developed the descended larynx so, yeah. so far, we've identified, I think, five species, but I'm sure there is more that's going to get discovered. There's a human, there's a koala, there is wow. a um, hammer-headed bat, there is a wolf, and I think there's at least one or two other species for which we've identified that their larynx is, you know, in an extremely descended position compared to... Compared hammer-headed to... bat. Do they actually have a head like a hammer? 
They, I think they're cute. You can always Google photos. I'm going to Google them. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> and a wolf. That's very strange. So all, yeah. I think all at least mammals. one or two species of wolf, maybe not all wolves, but. Um, oh, the deer, the red deer. Red deer. Wow, well, we've got them in New Zealand. Next, I'm going to look mm -hmm. at them differently now. They don't really make and sounds, though. They do make sound when they are. They oh, do. I don't know the term in English. In French, you call that bram. When they bram. Oh, yeah, they bram. It's a very low sound. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're right. Well, in German, you call it a brumpfschrei. <laughs> yeah, that's the same. Brumpft. <laughs> mm -hmm. Funny. Yeah, so, so that's the sign of the descended yeah. larynx. Um, in terms, and they're all mammalian, so this is... This, also, I mean, sound, the sound producing mechanism are so different in other species. Like birds don't have larynx, they have uh, syrinx. So it's syrinx. such a different mechanism, yeah. And, and I mean, they can make the most complicated sounds, more and way more complicated sounds, birds. Yeah, one way to think about bird uh, syrinx is that instead of one tube, that goes to the two lungs. They have yeah. two tubes that diverge very early that they can control independently. Uh, some wow. species. Wow. So, and well, that's oh, purely for mating. Is that, who says that? Who, who knows? That? Yeah. For attracting, yeah, and or maybe just for making the world a nicer place. Well, we're actually working on a, on a project on, on bird sound and on pre hatching vocalizations. What's so, that? you know, we talked about the fact that um, when babies, humans or mammals are born, their yeah. lungs expand and they make sound for the first time. Well, it seems that for a lot of species of birds, there is communication between bird parents and infants when they're still within the egg. Oh, I think I saw something about that on your... Yeah? I, yeah, so there's there's... They're singing to what when they're talking to their eggs. So there, there are two things. First is the fact that a lot of bird species, especially those that we call uh, precocious species, that you know when they come out of the eggs are pretty much able to, to just straight eat away chickens. Yeah. yeah, and those start perceiving sound in in their development in the egg almost halfway through incubation. So, How do you so know that? Oh, there have been a lot of studies from like a while ago on that. You know, chicken is take 21 days to come out of the egg and at day 11, yeah. they can hear the sound around them. But how they do react. we know that? How they react because if you take to an sound? Egg and, you, and you play recordings of, of either birds or high-pitched sound or specific type of sound, they will react to them. Like their body um, will twitch. Their body will twitch. Um, and, and later on, so some of those birds can also start producing vocalization before hatching. So in eggs, there's always a tiny air pocket inside the egg. And yeah. for some birds, a few days before hatching, their lungs start expanding already, and they can make sound using that air pocket. Wow. Just that air pocket there alone, so they're practicing. Yeah. So you have baby ducks that can make sound four days before hatching. Wow. In the egg. And, and this communication um, that we've known about for a while, but, but in the last few years, some researchers have discovered that for some species, it has very important um, uh, behavioral consequences for those birds to be able to have this, um, this communication. 
comme vous avez dit. Some birds will teach their eggs password songs to fool cuckoo, to avoid being fooled by cuckoo bird. Oh yeah. my, really? Yeah. Yeah, and, and only the eggs that can repeat the song when they hatch are fed. Oh my, really? Is that real? Oh yeah, my yeah. goodness. So what um, species of bird is that? To, that oh, is incredible. It's a fairy so, hen, I think. I think it's a fairy, fairy hen. hen. So that, in terms of evolution, would have come after the cuckoo bird learned to lay the, her egg in. You right? know, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. Uh, what, what comes before or after? Um, it's the chicken and the, the egg. That is the question, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most commonly studied songbird is a zebra finch. Yeah. Um, and they are very complex songs. Um, yeah. And it seems that they sing different songs to their egg depending on the outside temperature. Wow. And depending on the songs that they sing to their egg, the egg is going to hatch earlier or later as some kind of meteorological warning to tell them, hey, it's hot out there. You should come out to not cook inside. Or, oh, my. You know, it's cold. Stay in there so for a few more days. So zebra finch, is that what you said? Zebra finch, zebra. yeah. So from Australia? I think there are a lot of different places. In oh, they are all over. I'm not sure. Uh, the guillemot, you know, there are a bunch of uh, species of, of, of penguins, penguin-type bird, um, who live in huge groups. And um, the, bird, the baby learn within the egg to recognize their parents' voices. Wow. And so, and they, they're, so they're actually communicating instructions to the bird while it's still in the egg. They're communicating something. In our human words, we want to have explanation. But I yeah, think the beauty course. of it is to say, hey, there's so much that we don't know about that's important yeah. in this communication. Yeah. So. so it's like almost... The brain is hardwired to pick up on these vibrations. Yeah, in terms for a lot of, of for a lot of um, endangered species, you know, who are kept in zoos or in preservation center, those eggs are generally incubated in artificial incubators to to improve uh -huh. the the rate of survival from baby yeah. birds. But that, that deprives them from this communication quite often. So, with some friends and colleagues, we're working on the on the augmented incubator that also include a two-way audio transmission. No way. Are you guys really? Yeah, we call it the wow. Tamagophone. What's it called? Tamagophone. Tamagophone. Yeah, I have a little presentation tomorrow about that. Um, tamago, like egg in Japanese. Yeah. And uh, we're looking for potential partner who work with birds and want to test it. So, you know. All oh, right, we'll put a shout out there. That is so cool. So like Tamagotchi, like those little... Yeah, Tamago. Tamago, from tamago, tamago means egg in yeah. Japanese. Tamago. And so you've worked out the sounds that the mother bird would make. No, what these... we do is when you take the actual egg, you replace it with a dummy egg that has microphone yeah. and speaker. And the mom is going to nurse that egg. Ah, okay. And we're going to keep the link. And there are a lot of consideration depending on... Uh, you know, the species and, and um, the So you're the not actually yet um, mimicking the mother's... No, we just, want to, we just want to bring back the connection that already exists, and that's, uh, that's natural. Tamagophone. Wow. That's amazing. So, what, you've got a presentation tomorrow where? <laughs> yes. At MIT? 
Oh, it's a it's a very nice community um, workshop that's called VR. Uh, yeah. virtual interaction, uh, vocal interaction in and between human animals and robots. <laughs> it's nice. Wow. Is that part of the opera, opera of the future group no, or no, different? It's organized by, by a lab in Paris and there are a lot of, lots of uh, people who take interest awesome. in those questions. And they oh, you're, so you're doing it virtually? Yeah. Obviously. In French? Oh, I could, I guess. <laughs> well, wouldn't they all be French? I think it's a it's an international community. Okay, so they're not all sitting in France; they're all over the show. Yeah. Can I join this or no? I think so. If you can still register, V I A R. That's. I think it's on Zoom. Yeah. Oh, cool! So anyone out there? So there's probably not a. Watch. Hopefully, we don't crash the site by trying to come in there. It's probably only. Amazing. So, and that was something that was developed at the Opera of the Future group, wasn't it? The Tamago phone. You know, I am still affiliated with the Media Lab, so a lot of my work are really inspired by people there and by times there. But it's also some, yeah, some of the so some of this work was also inspired by um, the time I spent at the San Diego Zoo doing interventions on on zoo animals. Um, wow, and were you out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a great connection with, with some researchers there. Um, yeah, Gabriel Miller was our collaborator there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we did a few so, interventions on, on animals. We worked with pandas, actually, on, on hormone level in panda uh, voices that we can detect. Giant pandas. Um, wow, at San Diego Zoo. That's a, I've been there. It's a pretty, it's a big one. It's a very, it's a great zoo. I mean... It's, it's yeah. tricky also, you know, people have strong feeling about zoos. I'm trying to not, uh, you know, take too much sides around that. But but for animals in zoos that are already... Well, yeah, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're doing something positive. We're learning, right? So, and you're not exactly. harming, you're helping yeah. the animals. So. Um, so do you go and then stay for a couple of months out in San Diego? Um, we did that a few years ago where we would organize a few trips. We would collaborate a lot remotely and then we would fly there with some of our technology and talk to the keeper and prototype and and, um, and do interventions yeah so and in terms of like your everyday work do you have so where's your office if it's not at MIT is it at MIT still it's at MIT yeah yeah um, but you're sort of um, like doing postdoctoral work and yeah, I, I did postdoctoral work actually at the um, NOAA Science Department at MIT, and yeah. now I'm a I'm a research affiliate, so I have more more freedom. Okay, so you've got the freedom to do. Yeah, but I keep establishing connection with lab, um, basically all over the world in in my role of uh, innovation manager with Harmon International. Yeah. Okay, sweet. So that's your other connection, and that's started. That was started by MIT alums. Is that right? Um, no, that's a that's a company that's been there for a while. There are a lot of alums there, and we're trying to bring. Oh, it's right, so separate. Uh, yeah. And so, like, so you don't have to do lectures anymore at MIT or any of that. You don't at all as a research I do, affiliate. I do sometimes. Uh, I don't. I I don't teach a class this semester. <laughs> um, no. But I um, guest lectures. Yeah, I I enjoy doing guest lecture. I'm invited. To, 
here and there sometimes to talk about some specific aspects some projects yeah but you don't have like a class that you teach because i was just thinking you'd be so amazing for these guys to <laughs> learn from but i suppose you're doing more interesting things at the moment rather <laughs> well teaching is interesting don't want to say that but um so can we go into some of your more some of like you've done these incredible one of the things that really stuck out from that talk was the ability of i think it was some some form of ai in recognizing i mean we touched upon this a little bit if someone's been drinking alcohol but you can also go so far as um predicting cardiac events i think and even so certain so stages so of so parkinson's so yeah. so that's our work from from other researchers that that have been okay and building upon so so the work on parkinson recognition is um, from a, actually an alum from the Media Lab um, who went on to, to continue some of the research around that. Um, and the work on mental health, a lot of that is done in um, Satrajit Ghosh's group uh, in the neurology department at MIT. So What was the name? Satrajit Ghosh. He was. Ghosh. Uh, yeah. He's so he did the one where you can tell this. Was it spacing in the in the way that people were breathing at different stages of depression? So this is from a, a different lab, <laughs> but they are also doing a lot of uh, oh, right. of, um, of recognition from voice, medicine, um, yeah. mental health. Um, and what the is the what is the goal in that? Is that in order to create something like potentially where people could call up like a hotline that can gauge? The severity of their mental health affliction that's a good point so so some of it is is also for i think the power from some of those technologies is also self-understanding yeah um, and and it's not only about oh the machine is going to tell you if you're well or not but if we can tell you that there is something there and that you know giving empowering you with the power of your data that's kind of a, a way to think about it. And one example yeah. I like around this domain is around uh, postpartum depression. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about the fact that the, the voice changes at different parts of the menstrual cycle for yeah. women or, or people with, um, with, I would say, you know, female hormonal identity, um, yeah. people who have periods. Um, and when you get pregnant, your uh, hormone changes a lot also, and you also have a big change um, right after giving birth. And there are some very interesting theories around the fact that maybe part of depression, of postpartum depression, can be uh, traced back to the fact that because of this big change in hormone, your voice changes a lot. And so you end up speaking with a voice it's subconscious. You don't really realize that your voice is different, but your voice is different. So suddenly this object that has been so familiar is strange to you. Um, what you mean your voice? The object. Your voice. Yeah. So suddenly you, your voice is different. You don't really, you're not really aware it's different, but it's different. And so that could lead to some kind of cognitive shift. Wow. And that could, and that be, could underlie depression underlie or or be part of it so, so so a project that i would love to to work on is 
is bringing first bringing more awareness of this being like hey you're not feeling great think about maybe the role of your voice in in that or or bringing yeah. some some data to people in their everyday experience of their voice to make yeah. them realize no it's, it's not just in your head it's the hormone it's your voice wow it's, yeah it's still you your voice is not this immutable thing it, it it follows you and changes with you throughout your life so yeah it's so a kind of becoming better friends <laughs> with your voice um yeah and maybe the power of technology to in doing that wow so people could go hey alexa i want to play this song and she alexa will be like uh just beware there's a little bit of a change in your timbre you might not be feeling too well today so just be aware of that <laughs> like that yeah, I mean that. It's Alexa. Yeah, we, we, well, not Alexa. I mean, can I tell you? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I don't even know what Alexa sounds like, or is I don't even. This is why I'm saying you seem like you're from the future because this technology. I don't. I've never even been in a room where there's an Alexa, right? So we live in the. <laughs> I'm in a different century here, so which is why I said I said I don't even know if Alexa plays songs. I just know that she exists. We don't even have Amazon Prime here, right? So we you don't know, get deliveries. You say you know that she exists. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. deep. Also, Alexa exists. <laughs> exactly. I know she's somewhere. This weird robot thing <laughs> that's gonna take over the households. But um, I mean, that in terms of personalized med medicine, I mean, it wouldn't even have to be an Alexa. It would be us. We have a telephone conversation. And at the end of the phone conversation, whatever this AI generated therapist calls us and goes, I just picked up a little bit of a change in your, right? Or even I can tell that you've had some alcohol. You might want to think about drinking some dandelion tea or <laughs> is that, I mean, that is the future that, I mean, it's quite invasive, but it prevents yeah, people it's, from it's suffering. Another yeah. point here is is when you think about uh, behavior change theory. Yeah. Uh, the way you deliver an information is as important as the information you deliver. Sometimes, you know? uh, that's very yeah, true. So, um, so, you know, and because the voice, voice interaction, voice experiences are so much based on um, completely subconscious. Um, calculation that our brain does and, and an analysis yeah. that we're capable of, but without being aware of it, um, it's tricky to think about delivering information um, verbally <laughs> that 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 relates to that. So, so some ways. Okay, I see what you, you know, mean. That I'm talking so it would be better if it be a text if it comes. Is there a text? You know. One one of the work that I think some companies are starting to do slowly um, is, and you were talking about empathy earlier, because yeah. as of today, as of pretty recently, all of those uh, voice agents were um, ad didn't change the type of voice that they have when talking with different people, like you know we do. Um, and you know, if I'm talking to a friend who is sad, I'm gonna adapt subconsciously my voice posture to either match there or try to energize them or, or show yeah. some empathy from my voice. And, and Alexa or some of those um, agents are not capable of doing that. So one first element is to what extent can those um, machine match the voice of the person or, or, or provide um, 
counterpart to to some timber and and use that more in the way we do humans. I'm not sure if this would be a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's well, important for people to be aware that this is possible. And in not too long, that's just going to be the case. So kind of getting better at detecting the way we are affected we are affected by by those is important yeah. in order to to really realize um, what's going on in interactions. Well, and yeah, I mean, you've got this whole in immunology, this phenomenon of placebo, right? So people will respond. And so it's almost like when you get told a diagnosis of something, that diagnosis in itself will get worse because of the vibrations that are, do you know what I mean? So our voices could almost, I and mean, they say they could heal or they could, I mean, this is esoteric as well, but so it's, do you know what I mean? There's kind of a, like, the minute you said, oh, yeah, well, if you get told that in auditory form, it could also have an impact on something. Well, one way on. to think about that in, in that context is there are doctors that are very good at delivering news, bad news to their patients. They are yeah, oncologists. Uh, oncologists really, that, that are yeah. known for having their patients thanking them after yeah. giving them, you know, really tough diagnosis. So... So yeah. that's another element of, of empathy and, and power of the voice that used well, um, but the same kind of power can be used <laughs> wrongly. The other I mean, way around, yeah. And we, I mean, we don't have time, but but one day we should chat about voices in politics. That's also a huge yes. one. Yeah. Have you even, is that an area that you've been looking into? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so probably and, like and the round is, yeah, go on. Another time I said that, so. <laughs> All right. Um, I was going to say we could also just, I guess, to finish off, look at some of the more, let's switch to a nicer topic than politics. So you also, there's this voice-controlled paintings thing I was going to ask you about that you've worked on. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Voice-controlled paintings? I yeah. think it was a voice-controlled one. Was that not voice control or something? It was some form of painting that you had made or that changed when you spoke? Oh, yeah, or the one I... that I call vocal signature. Yeah, um, vocal signature, sorry. Yeah, so that's, that was an earlier project. Um, and it was another way of, you know, avoiding some of those, um, some of those holy grail questions of how do you represent <laughs> the voice? How do you visualize the voice? Yeah. Um, and... I, I was really interested in, in the subtlety of those of the motor command of the voice, yeah. And was thinking about ways to to to, to really under see those those motor command as proxy of the voice and see if there was ways to, you know, not not consider the voice as just the audio signal, but really as as this mechanism of voice. So, what do you, when you say motor commands, you mean? The actual muscles or the, the brain, yeah, yeah, okay, the yeah, muscle moving. So, so this idea, was, this project was uh, pretty simple. We found a very powerful laser. So, okay, maybe it was not that simple. We found a very powerful laser. <laughs> yeah, it was like simple laser. What? Yeah. We found a way to borrow it, um, and then yeah. we took tiny mirrors and we stuck tiny mirrors on our throats. Turned off the light and pointed the, the laser at the mirror. And so that was a way to really amplify those, um, uh, the motion 
coming from the throat. The vibration. And wow. The vibration, the, the, so the what motor. kind of mirrors were they? Were they like just stickers? Regular, yeah, regular little sticker mirrors that we that we stick to our throats. And then we just experimented with what happened. Um, so we pointed the laser and the laser got reflected and basically created this kind of Drew image. Drew the painting. Yeah. And wow, so that is that did you come up with that idea, Rebecca? That is incredible. That, that was part of those just experimenting. Is how do we see stuff? How do we look at things? Um, so that was really also part of this journey of understanding the voice and, and, and different ways to look at it. So that was more, yeah. I would say, an artistic project of yeah. visualization, but through this very tangible aspect uh, of the throat. So, and we did realize that, I mean, we didn't do any rigorous studies around it, but but there was some some pretty personal elements of well when when i'm doing it whatever i say there is some kind of thing that is still me projection of me in the visualization it creates and when when it's my friend or someone else doing it it's 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 kind of this is element of signature you know we call it vo wow. voice signature with laser so it's it it looks like a very nice calligraphy and it it contains something quite personal so then yeah. continue digging. So did it depend on what words were being said as well? Yeah, I would say it's it reflected some of my own uh, patterns of speaking and, and musicality and melodies. And uh, it would look pretty different when I would speak French versus English. <laughs> so, you know, you could see more oh, yeah, saccades and more, more right angles <laughs> when I was speaking French. Um, really? But well, what about French. when you speak German? It would be only right angles. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So... So, you know, there was some that was that was part of the journey of, of thinking yeah. about voice experience, importance of embodiment, and, and the projection that the voice is in the world. Would you say that our voice is as unique as our fingerprints? Um, that's a tricky one. Are they, are, is, some, would there be a likelihood? Yeah, go on. Some people are so good at imitating voices. Yeah, voice that's actors, what I was going to say. Yeah, they can they can fool <laughs> any AI you give yeah. them. Or, or you, you know, reckon they can fool? Time, yeah, I, I wouldn't say any AI, but so far, so I think for from the data I've seen, some people are just extremely good. Um, beatboxer, you were talking about beatboxers earlier. Yeah. Um, it seems that some of them, sometimes not consciously, are able to control um, the the muscle in their throat independently on the left and right side. Wow. You know, how we think about it as a tube and it's kind of symmet I mean, it's yeah. symmetric, but we control both sides like the same way. Well, some people are able to do almost more like birds and kind of divide their, their throat muscles in left and right to create more complex sound. Throat singers are kind of incredible at... at, at yeah, there's Mongolian... Uh... Yeah, Tuva, people from Tuva. Can Tuva. Create different pitch at the same time. So... There are some individuals that are just extremely good and have worked extremely hard in, in the control of the voice. So there is definitely a unicity, but I think I like to think more of the voice as like a, f a fluid projection of our identity. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not like not, a finger. Yeah. Yeah. Fingerprint is something that is always the same and always there, whereas our voice always changes. Like you said, you, your voice from when you're young changes to when you get older and then it becomes indistinct. I find that beautiful, like the whole, when we're babies, our voices are indistinguishable, like we are almost hermaphroditic. 
And then when mm -hmm. we get older, the same thing happens again, that whole the circle that we're coming back. And then we've got this whole little bit in between where we become two different genders um, for mm -hmm. better or worse, just to make more of us. And then we become these little, I think that's such a beautiful, um, yeah, it's a, a beautiful visualization and that the voice also maps this along with like the way we look as well. Like, cause we get, we shrink and we lose hair and we start to look like not fetuses, but when the older we are, you look at really old people, they're not quite babies, but they, you know, they definitely don't look like mature adults having lost mm -hmm. hair, having shrunk, losing teeth again. So it's that real. And the voice then obviously accommodates that in yeah. some way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I went, wanted to offer, I mean, we're running a bit out of time, but I just wanted to quickly, you do a lot of incredible, you did one bit of work with Alzheimer's patients. Was that right? You did something called the memory music box. Can you remember yeah, so that? This was, um, this was kind of funny. This project was um, um, came from my, my personal experience with my grandmother who passed yeah. away this past summer. Um, and she, she had a quite late stage Alzheimer. And even though yeah. she was in France and I didn't get to see her as much as I wanted, I, I did follow the, the degradation of, of her, of her state, of the cognitive yeah. state. Um, and also as that brought me to ask a question, what, what happens in our vocal communication when there's no more words, right? Yeah. Or when, when the words are not really there anymore, when the cognition, when the memory is not there, does the, the voice, is there still some kind of power of, of interacting vocally with each other? Um, and that was kind of the, the seed of this project. And it, it developed into something a bit more complex of, of creating connection across generations um, and creating a, a very, um, th this theme that with my friend and colleague, Alexandra Rieger, we, we coined the term uh, cognitively sustainable design. Yeah. So how can we create something so intuitive that people can use it without having to learn anything? And even as we decline cognitively, we are still drawn to using it a specific way without, you know, because I saw my grandmother not, not knowing how to use a computer anymore and a phone anymore and, and anything anymore. And I said, what would be the simplest thing that could still, that she could still interact with? And the very simple concept of a box that basically calls to be opened. Yeah. Um, and then once it's open, it's, it draws to create a connection with, with another human being across generation. Um, and for which she doesn't need any much cognitive ability, just, just yeah. seeing and, and listening. So that was really what, um, what, what that, a, amazing. Yeah. And, um, that is, so that came through some, sorry to hear about that with your grandmother. That's, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've had it as well. My my grandmother didn't have Alzheimer's. She had dementia, and obviously it's very similar, the, the mm -hmm. way cognitive decline and memory and all that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that. So speaking of um, people who are who struggle in this world, not necessarily struggle, but like you did work with um, 
for blind people as well? The social yeah. navigation through subtle interaction, is that? Yeah, the SNAZI yeah. project with collaboration. SNAZI, yeah, I love that. <laughs> that was something that you put on the clothes or something. What was that? Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that? Oh, that was, um, there's been a lot of interesting technology to help um, visually impaired people with spatial navigation, you know, how to find your way, how to navigate uh, in a room or outside. Um, but an, an issue that some, some uh, visually impaired, not, not all of them, but some people um, still talk about as a pain point is how do I know who is in a room? Um, and, you know, in, there are some effects like in, in, in parties or when everyone is standing and kind of fluid and moving around, it can be very hard for visually impaired to know where the friend is, where the group is, are people still paying attention? So some of those... Um, yeah. And it's interesting because I, I started on the project because people said, oh, you're so great at, you know, measuring and detecting the voice. We're going to do stuff around voice. Um, but when I started on the project, I quickly realized, well, blind people and visually impaired people are generally much better than any yeah. of, of uh, any anyone else at at detecting very subtle cues from the voice. So in this yeah. project, we're not going to use voice at all. Um, but we're going to use, you know, cameras and ways to detect some of those social cues um, and find subtle auditory ways to to give them to, to people. So this, this ended up with a pretty nice prototype. Um, and I think they went on to develop all of those uh, concepts more in some of their research using the, using um, uh, what they call VR audio, so so virtual auditory environment. Um, VR audio is that that's a thing. I think that might be the the way they talk about it. So the research they do for for visually impaired people. And was with Cecilia Morrison and her team at Microsoft yeah. Research Cambridge. Ah, that was a Microsoft project. And um, Cypods, am I pronouncing that correctly? That was for people oh, yeah. with hearing impairments. Yeah, this was a, you know, this might be the project that I've did that that is, um, that has been in use for the longest or is affecting yeah. people the most directly. This was um, from a collaboration with a, a few people from MIT and a, and a lady who came to us with this issue of, she had cochlear implants, and she said one problem is that she cannot use uh, earbuds. And she's frustrated of not being able to use earbuds. Yeah. So we just, you know, looked at her system, looked at her implant, looked at her, just uh, the attachment that, that transmit, that brings sound to, um, to, to an electric signal to be sent to her implant. And we just created a pretty simple um, 3D printed attachment to attach the earbud just just where the microphone is, so she could use her earbud in everyday life like like other people. Um, Amazing! So that was just a cute, nice short project. But I think so. It was ear ear earbuds for people who have cochlear implants. Yeah, cochlear Amazing. implants. You know, CI people call that CI in the community. So CI, like, yeah, yeah, Psi, Psi pod. So iPod, Psi pod. Yeah, I got that amazing. You also did something called Fox Ears, P-H-O-X. Yeah, that so that continue? was a collaboration with my friend, uh, Gershon Diplom, who, and we were interested, I was interested in how do we listen to, can we listen better to the sound of the body? 
because our, our body is really good at filtering out sound that, that it does or um, digestive sound and, and breathing sound and heartbeat and stepping sound. Um, and, 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 and Gershon was interested in how can we gain better control over our hearing in general and where we are listening to uh, in the outside world. So together we came up with this uh, pretty humoristic <laughs> and yeah. um, funky helmet. Yeah, uh, it looks amazing. Two, yeah, those two parabolas. Um, and on the, on the focal point of the parabola, we've put some, some um, microphones. And so, and, and the sound from those microphones goes to your ear through um, bone conduction. And you can yeah. direct the direction of the parabolas with little um, joysticks in each of your hands. So by moving the joystick, you change the exact direction of where you're listening. And, and, and because you do that left and right differently, it, it creates a very confusing experience. I was going to say, um, it must be. And, and Gershon went on to use this concept into his PhD thesis. Um, that was um, a, a very, very refined ways to, to perceive sound in a, in a control environment, but, but in, directed from eye gaze. So you could look at an object and suddenly you would hear exactly something coming from there. Um, and because he used um, this control environment with network sensing, he could also um, make people hear sound from the past. So that was kind of a very interesting way to, to take this funky object and, and make it into a very deep experience of, of understanding uh, sound in space. Yeah. So, and it was called Fox because... No, I, oh, our, our project was called Fox Ears because it's just a, we, it's parabolic, head-mounted, orientable, extrasensory listening device. So <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but also it had relevance in... Because yeah, the animal so itself both ear differently, and who have like um, very big ears that, that enables them to to have this kind of experience. Amazing. Um, I was going to say at the end, I was going to ask you about your fascination with hedgehogs, which I got wrong in my email <laughs> to you. Where did that come from? Oh, why so hedgehogs, you know, I did, Rebecca? I did, I, did, I did grow up with animals, um, and when yeah. I started the PhD program, I I knew oh, I'm going to be at MIT for another four years and I was living in a dorm at the time so I yeah. thought I really want uh, an animal companion um, yeah. what kind of animal could make sense uh, who could maybe live at the lab um, be a mascot no one would be allergic people would not be scared so we we did only on, on, on a hedgehog and we had a whole adventure of going and picking up a hedgehog and that was very fascinating because I had had all type of animals before, but that was my first non-domestic animal. Yeah. Um, and that was very interesting kind of interspecies relationship, I would say. Yeah. Where, did you, very... get a, where did you get a hedgehog from? Did you one oh, we did a lot of research. We got in Connecticut from a breeder. Um, yeah. And he lived with us for, for close to seven years, I think, which is pretty wow. long time for a hedgehog. Yeah. And you had a was, whole was, setup as well where yeah, he lived. He, he at was the lab. a mascot at the lab. We would bring him to class. We would <laughs> bring him to the shop downstairs. He would work with us. Everyone would know him. He has, he has met a lot of celebrities. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was famous. He had his own Instagram account. What, really? 
What was the what mm-hmm. was the name of his Instagram account? Is that still active? Send people there. Okay. Oh, so you can, you can still like it there. I'm not going to add new photos because he passed a few years ago. The the account is yeah. called Petit. So his name was Petit P E T I T. Yeah. Um, and exactly petted petted hedgy i think p-e-t-i-t-i-h-i-d-g-y so but that's like that'll be the instagram will now be what it is (laughs) for the rest of time it's not going to (laughs) change wow super cute and i noticed on your website as well you had a little sort of emoticon of a hedgehog Exactly, that was it's a our logo or. Um, and yeah. in terms of, because they're I mean notoriously super shy animals. Yeah. How was it? Did he would did he like interacting with people or? He was extremely sociable. Yeah, yeah really? we trained him well. At the beginning, oh. he would get hugs from everyone every day. What um, hugs? I thought. Isn't that? No, no, no. That? He was very good. There would be a few people that he would be scared of, but most of the time he was. He would never. He would very, very rarely roll up in a ball. He would just explode. How sharp are those? Like when he rolls up in a ball, like how will it pierce the skin? Uh, it can, but only if you only if he wants to. <laughs> you know, if if they are all well aligned, you can absolutely pet him and and give him rubs yeah. and, and scratch him. But um, the belly is very, very soft. Yeah. So, but if you pet it the wrong direction, it can actually. So they're actually really sharp, like barbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't think many people have touched a hedgehog before. This is you're in a rare group here. Well, everyone at the lab has. Everyone at the media lab. Well, has yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not a lot of people compared to the whole population. So amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can now see on the Instagram like he's properly. I've rarely seen a hedgehog legs before so they've got like mm-hmm. proper legs as well yeah. amazing um i'm realizing now we're at two hours and that's all i was going to take from you rebecca thank you so <laughs> much for coming on and yeah i might try and see if i can sort of snaggle my way into your lecture tomorrow v- <laughs> v-i-a-r who knows V-I-H-A-R. and um v-i-h-a-r v-i say it again v-i-h-a-r h-a-r Okay, we'll have a look at that. And yeah, and I'll obviously link to your page in my bio and you're working on um, Tamago, Tama, Tamago phone at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there yeah, anything else? That... I'm still working on stuttering. Um, I'm still stuttering working on, on a few different ex- experiments around eating, around animals. Um, and great, meaningful collaborations. So yeah people in that area don't hesitate to talk to Rebecca. Mm-hmm. She loves cro- cross collaborations and who knows that you might end up coming to Wellington Zoo for a, a stint. That would be I'm fantastic. Def- I'm definitely going to tag them in this. Let's make that. Our, our, <laughs> I'll tag our prime minister in here as well. Just in our turn. We'll, we'll start a petition. Um, amazing. So good to have you on. And can we have this again sometime in a couple of months? Would you come back? Sure. Uh, yeah. When you've got the we'll, time. We'll see, we'll see how you edit this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. I'm notoriously no, not going to edit anything. This is going to stay the way it is, unless you tell <laughs> me I don't want that bit. Yeah. Of course. People love long form interviews, and 
Yeah. Wow, two hours. I'm, well, congratulations to anyone who can listen to the entire exactly, thing. Exactly, who listens to the end. <laughs> I know. We'll see. No, thank you so much and have a lovely evening and hopefully talk to you very soon again, Rebecca. Thank you, you so much, Chris. Kiwi living yeah. outside of New Zealand <laughs> who plays rugby and can shear a sheep. Amazing. Thanks so much. Um, a bientôt. How do you say it? Goodbye. Au revoir. A bientôt. Nice one. Have a great day and we'll talk soon, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much. Awesome. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to the end. And thank you, Rebecca, for being an absolutely amazing guest to have on the show. I really appreciated that talk and I still have a million questions. So hopefully we'll be able to continue this conversation in another episode. Fingers crossed. We're also going to be sending this out to Wellington Zoo, Auckland Zoo, Christchurch Zoo in terms of the Tamago phone that Rebecca's working on with her team. And who knows, maybe there will be an interesting collaboration in the future. And we could even have this podcast recorded in person when she comes to New Zealand. Um, yeah, Kapai, everyone, for listening till the end. And yeah, tune in next week when there'll be Celia Litvin. Uh, PhD in psychology who is the founder of a company called Psych Apps which deals with creating applications on the internet that help people with anxiety, depression and a host of other mental health issues so be sure to join in then don't forget to check out my Patreon uh, subscribe to Substack and yeah any contribution is welcome and Yeah, a big shout out again to Rebecca. You were a brilliant guest and hopefully we have you again on soon. Have a lovely week, everyone. Big shout outs. Maori ora.